the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Coast and Mohamed Nalla. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. Welcome to episode 74 of Magic Markets. And tonight we welcome back a guest who you've heard from before. He joined us back in December when the world was a somewhat different place, especially uh, in the region in which he lives. And that is Andres Retif. He's the CEO of Central and Eastern Europe for DHL. As you can guess from his name, he doesn't sound very Polish. He sounds, in fact, very Afrikaans. And uh, that's because he's South African. So we welcome him back to the show. It's really cool to have international guests who can bring us this sort of uh, insight into the world. Mo, welcome to you first. And congrats on getting through Eid in one piece. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Ghost. Uh, Certainly better fed than I was yesterday. Uh, But again, for our listeners, you know, we, we just recorded our Magic Markets premium show earlier today. And we seem to be navigating two things when we do these recordings. One is the sighting of the moon. And the other is a ghost, your ESCOM load shedding schedules. So like I said to our premium subscribers, you know, this is either very dark with a crescent moon in the sky, or it's just very dark in your case. But uh, yeah, always a pleasure doing this and a pleasure to to welcome Andres. You know, I think the last time we spoke to Andres, we were talking supply chains because in the latter part of last year, that was one of the most pressing issues. We're talking inflation, we're talking supply chains. What does it look like at the coalface? And unfortunately, you know, this is fast forward a couple of months, you know, I think that was December last year, fast forward a couple of months, and it we still have the supply chain issue. So that discussion, for those of you that don't know, it was episode 55. So go and check that one out, because that was very insightful. But unfortunately, those issues are still with us. And now we have a much more pressing issue that's upsetting a whole bunch of stuff in the markets, but also has a much more direct human impact. And that's the war between Russia and the Ukraine. So we thought, let's bring Andres in. Andres literally sits at the coalface in Eastern Europe. Let's get a blow-by-blow from the front line, what's happening on the ground. So Andres, welcome to Magic Markets. Thanks, Mo. Thanks, Ghost. Uh, Good to be back. Uh, When we last spoke, I thought we'd have to navigate many different issues in the supply chain, but I must admit the war in Ukraine was never one of them. But um, good to be back with you guys today. Yeah, it puts load shedding in perspective. So we've got three South Africans, really. I mean, two of you don't live here anymore. And uh, you still have to run your lives around load shedding. So I'm sorry about that. I apologize on behalf of ESCOM. Uh, I, I jinxed it in ghost mail this morning, the last weekly one ever, because I shared that awesome Under Armour advert of Michael Phelps' training routine. It's like it's what you do in the dark, you know, that puts you into the light. So this is life in South Africa. It's what we do in the dark is uh, is key, because we really don't have a choice. But it pales in comparison, Andres, to what you have no doubt dealt with obviously you know some stuff you can you know talk about some stuff you may not be necessarily able to talk about and i think from an investment perspective you know what are people talking about on that side what is really you know top of mind we read it in the news we read about you know ukraine as a provider of grain we read about supply chains we read about all this stuff but what's happening on the ground that side are there major impacts to what's in the stores not really what's the story there 
Yeah, I think from an investor perspective, you know, there's there's multiple discussions around um, raw material availability, the movement of people across the border from Ukraine into predominantly Poland, but all parts of Europe in, in general. Um, I mean, looking at it from an investor perspective is probably the right way for purposes of our discussion today. But I, I think a lot of the discussion at the moment in this market is also still very much around the human impact and, and the, cri- the humanitarian crisis that has been created. I am, saw some statistics recently that says 10 million Ukrainians have been displaced. Five and a half million of those have moved into the European Union. And to be honest, about two and a half million of those are in Poland alone. So you can you could just imagine the impact on uh, the infrastructure in the country when it comes to public transport, uh, healthcare, schooling, etc. And um, one feels it in the city when you I live in Warsaw and and when you move around in the city you you hear the Ukrainian language of course a lot more but you also just see it in the sheer number of people that are around and. Um, this this will have an impact on on the world, I think, for for a long time to come, but very very much so in the markets where we operate in Europe. Yeah, the humanitarian crisis without a doubt front of mind, and I guess life on the ground. Yeah, it must be it must be pretty crazy. I mean, for people who haven't been following the media that closely, because I must be honest, I uh, I started following it closely when it happened, and by about the third picture of a dead child, I was done because you know it doesn't help to put yourself through seeing that stuff, imagining your own little one in that situation and then not being able to focus for five hours. Like no one wins in that scenario. So I must be honest, I did somewhat decide to uh, manage my own mental health and try not to see as much of the stuff as I can. But on the ground, how does that work? I mean, are these Ukrainian kids going to Polish schools? I, I would think, you know, it's a stupid example perhaps, but like Spa has a grocery business in Poland. You know, suddenly there's a whole lot more people presumably buying food or receiving help from you know the polish people who by all accounts have been unbelievably accommodating from everything i've read have really opened their homes and what does that practically look like i think polish people predominantly have been in the news for the amazing work they've done in terms of the humanitarian support they've given to refugees it's, it's true for all europeans or uh, european union citizens i would say it's not specific to poland but clearly poland has carried the brunt of the of the influx of people um, on the ground itself, as I said, you can see the difference. You can feel the differences in the stores. It's fuller. The basic things like um, public transport buses run at a higher capacity at the moment. Um, Warsaw public transportation is fuller than it used to be. Uh, Warsaw is 15, has got a 15% increase in the population. And I must say, when I saw that statistic the first time, I thought, okay, it's 10 to 15%. It's it's not that bad. But when you then start working out what that means in terms of number of hospital beds, number of schooling places, number of um, seats on a bus, it's an incredible strain that it's putting on the system. Um, and, uh, and you can feel it. You, you feel it in the, in the shops. You feel it in the, in the, in the stores. So um, I think a lot of stores have seen an influx of, of new buyers. So maybe also linking it slightly to the, um, to the investor side of things. Potentially, that could bring some opportunities in the in the medium to longer term. But um, right now, a lot of the focus is around how do we support um, people that desperately need the help. Yeah, I, w- I want to jump in here. So, and I was speaking to some people who you know live in Budapest, so your your neighboring country in Hungary. And you know what's interesting? This, this will take a slightly different approach. I mean, I know Ghost came at it from a kind of a bottoms up. What does it look like? You know, more mouths in the grocery store, grocery stores. Uh, more people on your public transit, more people in the healthcare system. 
I want to look at something different. I want to say that Hungary, for example, is also taking in a lot of refugees, you know, a couple of hundred thousand, maybe close on a million by now. And that's also, you know, large numbers for them. But interestingly enough, on the geopolitical front, you know, Poland has definitely been on, if you want to call it the side of NATO and, you know, traditional Europe. Uh, Canada has been very vocal. You know, we've taken in a lot of Ukrainian refugees. We're, we're seeing that here as well. So we're seeing a lot of people come into Canada. They've already been settled, you know, maybe not in the millions, but certainly in the, the double digit thousands and maybe close on 100,000 by now, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, Hungary, however, has not been on the same side. And that's interesting, right? So Hungary's recently elected a more right wing president. Uh, they've not come out very strongly against Russia. They're also taking Ukrainians in. So, you know, maybe some perspectives here, because again, from for a South African audience or even just a non-European based audience, these idiosyncrasies are, are difficult to contextualize. We try, try and look at it and we say, OK, you know, Europe is Europe, but maybe Europe's not Europe. You know, are, are you seeing subtle differences? What does that mean? Because maybe Polish people are very welcoming, but being welcoming when your buses are full and your hospitals are full and your service delivery is impacted either doesn't last very long if it existed there in the first place, if your government is arguably not even aligned with what the rest of Europe is, is saying or doing. Maybe some perspectives on that without getting too political. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, if we talk about politics, we'd probably be here for much more than what the show allows. So I probably prefer to separate the, the political discussion from what the average man on the street is doing. Um, I think I've seen only good examples of European people, be they Hungarian, Czech, German, Polish, um, really opened their minds and their hearts and their houses for for the Ukrainian refugees. Um, that that might differ depending on the on the relationship between the the people of those countries historically. So I think the the Ukrainian and the Polish people specifically have had a very strong relationship over years. Before the war even started, there were about two to two and a half million Ukrainian people living and working in Poland anyway. So that relationship existed back back then already. Um, but I, I think we, we, should not, we should not look at the politics of it so much more. I think the, the people of the countries that I've seen and where I've worked have been incredibly welcoming. Um, does it last forever? I think that's the question we all wonder about. Um, the strain it's putting on the, on the public system, I've just explained that, will be, will be large. And there might come a point where citizens of a country doesn't like that anymore. So I think that that potentially could happen. But at that point in time, or hopefully sooner than that, um, you'd also hope that there's a solution to this crisis, either through the war ending or through the European Union stepping in at a macro level and providing adequate support for Ukrainian refugees. Um, and there's probably two or three more solutions that uh, people much smarter and, and getting paid much more than me will hopefully come up for, with by then. Yeah, I, I want to just leverage off, off the point, right? So so the, my first point is just going to be an observation. It's not really even directed to, to Andres, is that... For me, what's been quite stark in this entire catastrophe, because it's a humanitarian catastrophe, is the receptiveness to refugees in Eastern Europe. Now, I, I say this being the only brown person, and again, from South Africa, we come with that cosmopolitan view, so we can have an honest discussion about this. As the only brown person on this particular call, right, for me, that's quite stark, because if you rewind two to three years, 
It was a very anti-immigrant kind of anti-refugee mindset that permeated a lot of Europe. Despite the fact that immigration is tied to economic growth, we know the labor shortages, etc., etc. So that for me, the contrast between accepting refugees and immigrants from technically a, a peripheral European country versus other parts of the world is quite stark. It doesn't sit quite well with me. So that's just a comment from my perspective. What I want to do, just while we're still on the macro, is energy. Right, Energy is the big crunch point in Europe right now. And about a week or two ago, we saw Russia turning off the taps. I think it was to Poland. You know, I think Poland was impacted and they turned off the taps to, to energy there. What's the on the ground experience? You know, Are you seeing spikes in energy prices like we saw in the UK last year? Are those going to become systemic? Uh, so maybe quantify that for us because it's all well and good if you have millions of new customers. But if at an aggregate level, everyone's constrained because your energy prices have tripled or whatever they may have done. Those people don't have disposable income. So maybe some perspective on the energy situation specifically. I think this is the question that we're all grappling with at the moment. The the average consumer, I'll take myself as an example, would have seen their monthly gas and utilities bill go by 50 to 100%. It's doubled essentially over the last four months. Um, and, uh, and that will have a knock-on effect into discretionary spending, which will eventually go into, you know, do I do e-commerce shopping online? Do I go out to the movies tonight? Or, or do I actually choose to use that money to fill up my car? Because, frankly, that's needed to get to work. Um, so uh, this is the challenge right now. Uh, we, we don't have any severe shortages in, in the sense that we have a gas shortage equivalent of uh, load shedding. But um, clearly the cost increases are there and, uh, and that will have an impact on the economy for, for, for a very, very long time. I think we are a little bit fortunate in the sense that Europe is going into summer. So that means the general consumption would be lower anyway. So that might buy a bit of time in terms of finding a solution. But um, that, that the clock is certainly ticking on making sure that Europe in general can find an alternative source of gas. Or, or that uh, as the, the alternative solution to that, of course, is that they find a uh, a solution with Russia, which probably would need to would, would need to the war to end for that to be the case. Andres restaurants are they coping with these energy increases? I'm just thinking like you know, all these different industries that get impacted. So you know, food service businesses that supply restaurants went through a horrible time, obviously in the pandemic, a really bad time. As uh, a shame, these restaurants have kind of only just started to see the light after COVID, and now this. And I would imagine, I mean, I've never owned a restaurant. To be honest, I've never even seen the income statement of one. I just know it's not easy. But I would think that your energy, your cooking costs are really high. I'm just curious, are you hearing or seeing anything along the lines of restaurants taking serious pain from these prices? And not just in Poland, but maybe across Europe. Is that a narrative that is playing out? Yeah, it's certainly not an easy industry to be in at the moment. Um, I don't think it's an easy industry in general. Somebody once told me that owning a restaurant is like playing a game of rugby or football against a fresh team every hour. Um, so uh, I'll never forget that. But um, in general, we see a number of restaurants that you know would have existed last year this time not opening their doors for the summer season. And um, unfortunately, that again has another impact on uh, on families and on income levels in general. So. I think these these are the some of the effects that will will stay with us for a while. Yeah, I mean, Andres, that's unfortunately. I just I really think war is something that's so difficult to contextualize for a lot of people that haven't experienced it firsthand. I mean, it's it's all well and good. We kind of discussed this from fifty thousand miles away, and uh, you know, you're right there. 
But what are some of the the longer term impacts in your view? We've kind of touched on the oil. We've kind of touched on restaurants and small business. But, you know, something that's quite stark for me right now, even on the macro basis, is that in the U.S., you've got an economy that's pumping. Honestly, it's pumping. The U.S. consumer is very strong, even below the headline data. That's looking strong. Uh, you've got the Fed later this week. You know, we're recording this pre the Fed decision, but the market's currently pricing in a 50 basis point move and then several thereafter. The ECB has been a lot slower. I know why they're slower, is that if you've got a war on your doorstep, your stagflationary risks are much higher. You've got sticky, high inflation. When your energy utility bills have more than doubled, that erodes incomes and that erodes expenditure, and that means growth is going to fall off a cliff. So how do you, from the ground, how are you seeing that stagflationary risk? Uh, is it something that, in your view, businesses are adequately preparing for? Uh, do you think policymakers are aware of this? And, you know, does that play into and lead to this divergent policy between the Fed and the Eurozone? You know, I, I read it that way, but I'd, I'd like to know if the on-the-ground experience actually validates that opinion or if I'm, I'm getting it wrong because I'm looking at it from 50,000 feet. Before Andres answers that question, save our listeners a Google. Come on, give us a give us a thirty second of what is stagflation. We did a show on it way back in the beginning in Magic Markets, and people thought we were crazy. What is the stagflation nonsense? And I distinctly recall we said it is a non-zero risk in a world after COVID. So I think it's worth spending a minute on what that is, and then Andres can go. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. I mean, I, I take it for granted, but maybe there's some listeners that didn't catch the earlier episode where we spoke about this last year. So. We know what inflation is, but what is stagflation? Stagflation is when you have sticky and high inflation because of some sort of exogenous shock, oil prices in this case because of the war. But at the same time, you have low or persistently low economic growth. Now, why is this a problem? Is if you look at the policy tools that policymakers generally tend to have, they are orientated around controlling inflation. You know, they're orientated around a world where stagflation doesn't exist. And the last time the world had a mega stagflation environment, the, the, the analog there is the 1970s. You had the oil price shock. And unfortunately, to resolve stagflation, there's no easy direct policy move. You can't hike interest rates to control the inflation because that kills growth even more. Uh, and because the inflation is run from an exogenous source, the war, energy prices, the only resolving factor there means that the war needs to resolve and the energy markets need to actually then normalize. So that's what stagflation is. And it's really uncomfortable because economies get stuck in a low growth, high inflation rut that's actually very difficult to navigate from an investment as well as from a, a business perspective. Yeah, I think just to quote a few numbers, right? I mean, uh, Poland has just announced, the uh, central bank has just announced a 12% um, inflation rate here on here in April. So that was 5%, 5.5%, not very long ago, to be honest. Interest rates are going up exponentially. I made the personal mistake a year ago of buying a house in Poland. So um, my bond has become a lot more expensive. So again, I think these are the challenges for the man on the street. And these are the, these are the things that they need to deal with on a daily basis. I suppose in terms of what does this mean for the future, or the war in general, um, I think you could take two different approaches. And I know you guys do a bull and a bear box when you're looking at um, Magic Markets Premium. But um, I, I would sort of argue both sides of that coin, to be honest. On the, on the one hand side, you know, we've just spent a few minutes talking about all these challenges around inflation, interest rates, um, the, the, so the challenges of sourcing new products and materials, etc. These clearly are indicating that there will be low growth in this market for, for some time to come. I think on the other hand, you've also got to look at 
what are the um, the opportunities and I mean that in the nicest possible way it's not it doesn't feel good to talk about opportunities in time of war but um, these markets in Europe and Central and Eastern Europe specifically have for many years struggled with very very low unemployment the availability of people has been really tough they are now five and a half million people in in this market that needs to find a job um, so I think that in itself provides a new labor pool that that companies could use to um, to grow with. Uh, at the same time, I think a lot of the investment that used to go into Ukraine and Russian markets now would probably go into um, into the European Union side of the border. So uh, companies would still have money to invest and they, they would still have growth strategies. So that money might come into countries like Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, uh, Germany itself even. So I think we, we're looking at it from, from both angles and say, it depends a bit on the sector you're in. It depends a bit on the industry, but there could be both both opportunities as well as clear and obvious challenges coming out of this. So uh, who knows which one it will be? It it really just in the end depends, I suppose, on some of the specifics around um, the industry. I'm actually so glad that you just said what you said now, and I'll tell you why. Is that I was looking at German sentiment indicators uh, just last week, and German sentiment, and, and and these are not lagged. So you're talking like March, April data, right? And they were not as downbeat as I thought they would be. And I was, I was struggling to contextualize. So, so why would that be the case? And I think you've hit the nail on the head is that, you know, the tight labor markets that we, we've discuss, discussed as well here in, in Magic Markets with regards to North America, that's a material issue, right? I mean, we, we have businesses here that are struggling to fill vacancies. And it sounds like Europe's the exact same situation. But I guess the difference here is that the ability to plug in a Ukrainian workforce into Poland is arguably a lot easier than plugging in a Ukrainian workforce into Canada, for example, or the United States. And so I, I almost say, again, wearing that look at both sides, the bull box here, is that does that potentially mean that you ease up your work, your, your labor shortages in that market, which then supercharges growth when and if things start to normalize? And even if they don't normalize, it just helps you address what was an existing capacity constraint in effectively some of Eastern Europe, but what was then kind of, you know, some Western Europe as well, Germany in particular. So I think that's very valuable. And I think that might cause me to just relook at some of the nuance and the detail because there might be some hidden gems in terms of an opportunity set, you know. And yes, it does feel wrong to discuss an opportunity set, but that's what businesses have to do is you have to plan for through the cycle, right? Yeah, I would add to that there's... Um... There's, there's five, I said five and a half million new employees potentially in the market. I mean, at the same time, there's five and a half million new consumers. Um, they, they need to buy basic goods, uh, food, clothing. Uh, they probably eventually, after earning enough money, would also want to go to restaurants. So um, I, I think there's many opportunities in, in, in this. Maybe they're not so visible immediately because we're really only nine weeks into this war. But um, once it's stabilized, I, I think we might see a real growth spurt after after this war. My long spa trade is potentially going to actually pay off in the end. And I think, look, it's human nature to be adaptable. I mean, I just look at South Africa. So we have this electricity crisis, obviously. But a lot of the mines now are starting to put in big renewable projects, take their operations off grid. And then over time, what ends up happening is that obviously lessens the load on ESCOM, which is just as well because ESCOM seems to just be getting worse. So I don't know where that graph intersects. All I know is that it doesn't look great. But you can see how the market works, right? So you have big companies, they have a need in a commodity upswing to make sure their operations are still running. So now it's economically viable to go and do the big renewable energy investments. And guess what? 
There's a whole lot of companies with the technology waiting to provide that solution. And guess what? There's a whole lot of bankers waiting to help them raise the debt with an impact type flavor to it, going into a fund that can tick an ESG box. And that's how it works. That's how humans are. We are nothing if not unbelievably adaptable. And I think the people of Eastern Europe have an incredible history of adapting. They've had to. And maybe this is something that galvanizes a population into action around your sentiment point. Maybe it's been really easy for really long. And now it's like, hang on, we actually have a problem. We have uh, something where we need to pull together. And that's what ends up happening. So yeah, Andres, I'm glad the bear box and bull box has rubbed off on you. Because I do think that there are always good things and bad things economically. There's never good things and bad things from a humanitarian perspective. In this case, there's only bad things, clearly. But, you know, from an economic perspective, people the people who manage to get out, the people who survive, they dust themselves off and they figure it out. That's what we do as people. We discussed the fact that there are millions of new potential consumers. Uh, we discussed the fact that there will be strain on infrastructure. So what does the investment build out look like? I know, for example, from a South African perspective, there was a very strong Eastern European property theme that came through a couple of years ago. It then kind of waned. But I know, for example, one of the funds, I stand corrected, I think it's Mares Real Estate in South Africa, was actually looking at increasing investment in Eastern Europe. Uh, and Ghost, you're probably best positioned to, to, to just check, fact check me on that. But if that's in fact the through the cycle view, does that become an infrastructure build out play? Do we see the likes of a new Marshall Plan to rebuild a Ukraine once this kind of settles down? Do you see that coming to construction? Do you see it as a consumer staples play? Do you see it as a, a just general property real estate play? Which sector? So how are you seeing this play out over the longer term? Let's apply a nice long term lens to this. Yeah, I think to, at the risk of sounding like I'm sitting on defense mode, it could be a little bit of all of those. Um, but uh, if I was to put my money on, on two or three different um, areas or focus areas, I probably would say um, at some point, uh, Ukraine will be rebuilt and will take an incredible amount of investment. And I think the, clearly the international community um, will be ready for that. They've already started making those promises. And I think um, the public will hold them to account in that regard. So using uh, Central and Eastern Europe as a launch pad for that investment into the Ukraine, I think will be one area that will, that will significantly uh, generate growth. I would probably also then repeat my point from earlier where I said, you know, there will be five and a half, maybe in the end, it will be somewhere between five and 10 million uh, consumers in this market that um, that will need to go to grocery stores and will need to buy clothing and, and the like. So I think retailers will, from that perspective, will will benefit. They, they will need to have housing and education and the likes, but I leave that up to the government to a large extent. Um, and I think then that would then have an obvious impact on um, industrial property. So right now it's a bit tougher. I mean, the, the steel price itself is incredibly volatile. And um, when you're trying to construct anything that requires a large amount of steel, your, your project is somewhere between 20 and 50% more expensive than what it was eight weeks ago. So you can imagine that companies are a little bit hesitant in terms of spending that money at the moment, but that should stabilize. And once that has happened, then um, a lot of these um, these growth projects will need a supply chain. And, and behind that will be, will be properties and, and warehouses and rail yards and uh, trucking. So I think that that industry will also um, then go through a new growth spurt. So this will probably be the two or the three areas where I would say there they would be some substantial growth in the medium to long term. 
So Andres, you have a very uh, senior role in supply chain. We would be doing ourselves, our listeners, and you a disservice if we didn't finish off with a question around that. Firstly, you're with DHL. The Russian Grand Prix is now off the calendar, so there's a slot. If you could just pull some strings for Kyle Army, that would be great. Maybe between you and Lewis, someone will listen. Um, it's not often I find myself on the same side as Lewis Hamilton, but here we are. But perhaps more importantly, uh, the question on everyone's lips is obviously supply chain, as I referenced. I mean, we've just done a recap show on Nike. Their transit times between the East and North America, six weeks, I think it is, Mo, longer than pre-pandemic. So two-thirds of their working capital in inventory is in stuff that's on the water, not in the stores. I mean, it's just an incredible scenario. So obviously, you are insanely well-placed to give us a view on this to the extent you can. What do supply chains look like right now in Europe? And is this going to ease up soon? And, and, and before you even go there, I just want to throw in one more thing is we've all seen the pictures of all of those tankers sitting outside Chinese harbors, you know? I mean, that's just staggering. How much of this is a global supply chain tightness? How much of this is specific to China when it comes to their zero COVID policy and the slowdowns of Chinese ports? I think that will give us an interesting kind of nuance between companies that are very exposed to just China versus a broader supply chain theme. Let me first address the F1 comment because I remember us recording this podcast in the week leading up to the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. So I, at that point, said Max for the win. I, I got it right by what was it about four corners so um i but i will not make any promises about uh, f1 grand prix at kailami ghost i'm sorry in terms of supply chain i'm probably much better place to talk about supply chain than formula one i i think if you would if even if you tried you probably couldn't come up with a worse scenario where you have a combination of china's COVID policy and the war on ukraine all hitting the world at the same time it's clearly a global problem I, I think we've seen those pictures that you've referred to, Mo. They, they impact most markets in the world. So there is a global challenge around supply chain at the moment. If I was to narrow that into Europe, Europe specifically, I mean, just again, I, I love a good stat. I think um, a couple of weeks ago, probably two, three weeks ago, it took 80 hours to cross the border into Poland out of um, Belarus, and there were 2,800 trucks standing waiting to clear the border. So you can imagine the backlog, the impact that will have. That was that was road freight. So there is a significant reduction in, in cargo capacity. Uh, prices are much, much higher than they used to be. I think any um, company making a public release at the moment will mention that. So this is these are the challenges we're facing from a supply chain perspective right now um and i suspect we'll continue to face for 2022 uh, my expectation would probably be that somewhere around 2023 things will start to normalize but then again when we spoke in november i didn't expect a war in ukraine in february so it's a bit difficult these days to make these sort of predictions but hoping for the best 2022 will be bumpy uh 2023 hopefully will be a bit better Andres, I think that's really what we've got time for. Thank you for coming back. Uh, you know, you bring such interesting perspectives to the show. It's always fun to chat to you. Andres, I think it was a fantastic show. You know, I, I thank you for, for agreeing to come on the show, give us your on-the-ground perspectives. Uh, thank you for being a Magic Markets premium subscriber as well. You know, I think we the, the more we can weave this, this, this whole ecosystem together, the richer the insights become from our followers, from our subscribers, from guests like yourself. So this was very insightful for me, both from a micro, on-the-ground, company-specific view, as well as from a macro perspective. Uh, Andres, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. And if I may add one last comment, given that you've mentioned supply chains, I think um, it will be a mess of me not to give a small shout-out to everybody working in this 
supply chain at the moment. This is a clearly a tough job. I think as South Africans, we bolt in with an incredible amount of resilience. But I can tell you there's a number of people with large amounts of resilience at the moment working in supply chain. And um, they're doing an absolutely amazing job to try and keep the world moving. So also just wanted to recognize that. And thanks for having me. It's always a great pleasure to talk to you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.